let's go ahead and do a little bit of uh, sentimental backtracking in the scriptures that highlight where we will be, which is in Luke today. And I want to have you turn in the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter um, 7. It's in brevity. It's an important place to mark if it's not familiar to you. Then now it can be. Picking it up in verse 10, as we have been previously marching through humanity, that's in essence the past couple of themes, God rocking the cradle of humanity, the cradle of humanity ultimately toppling from the pinnacle, from the treetop of what should have been its time to glorify God and to create a society that would be spiritually rich towards the Lord and accomplish much on behalf of God, and it didn't, got washed away. But it didn't change God's pursuit of the heart of man. And a phrase that was used was the corridor of redemption, in which God, anticipating the movement of men, still sovereign, meaning that he was going to act on his behalf, regardless of men's behavior, would be in pursuit of their heart. We can see that in the book of Isaiah, in which he, 700 years before what Luke records, he had spoken about how an event would unfold in which he introduces himself into humanity, coming from the portal of heaven and ultimately through the womb of a woman. This woman's name is Mary. This area in Isaiah 7 simply tells us what was going to be God's plan and fulfillment. So it is interesting because 700 years in advance, it's penned the time roughly that we do celebrate, a little bit off on the calendar though, is marking the date of that fulfillment in which we celebrate none other than God, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord and our Savior. It says this in verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign. For yourself, from the Lord your God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But he has said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, if God gives you permission, take it. Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. And then it goes on to say, historically, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings, precisely historically in the manner that it did happen. 
Meaning that the southern and the northern kingdoms did not exist at the time in which Jesus came, which was under Roman tyranny. That had gone. If you move further on in text, the classic phrase to pick up is found in chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This will speak of an event that is supernatural. It is a marker both for people that will be used in this particular drama that's unfolding in the revelation of God bringing his son, big giant flashlight from heaven that points specifically to what we just read, a child is born unto us. Why? Because in that lineage, the generational fallout of what sin did, it still had not been dealt with by God in a manner in which men, women, and children could be saved apart from what only works could point to. Some, in the Old Testament, lived out a life in faith, looking forward to the promise of God, we look back on the fulfillment of God's promise. And God knows precisely who those were that walked. We take account of some notables, both men and women, who honored God, looking forward to what he said about his plan and about how they were to follow. But this tells us those times in which it was dark. The Gospel of John records that to as well this fulfillment. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. Notice this, verse six, familiar to you, but let's go ahead and review it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And he did. If you'll set your course right now in the Gospel of Luke, we'll be picking it up in chapter 1, precisely verse 26. But let me share with you something that is important also, chronologically, based on numbers that have been calculated. They're approximations, but I think it's fair to say where specifics may not be fully able to align because of time, calendar counting, differences in how certain things have been recorded, we're getting very close to being able to say that approximately at 4,000 plus years, God in this event that we are reading about and that 700 years before it happened was predicted, and ultimately there were 400 years in which silence would be invoked. The people 
Not only were those who walked in darkness, but their ears would not hear the balance of God's heart again until he chose to reveal it from heaven with an angelic choir and messengers that would be shepherds and ultimately wise men that would come from the far east. And it's an amazing thing that we see right now that's unfolding, and here's why. If, for instance, starting off a generation, and let's make the approximation of years of a man's life to be 100 back then, just to round things off. And as that man is born, lives to 100, dies, and on that same day of his death, there is one born who lives out 100 years, dies, and on the day of his death, another one born. It's easy to see lineage is not too difficult that within a thousand years, you have a fairly straight approximation of how many men there would be. At this point in time in history, it is very close to saying that Jesus would have been born in the 4,000th year of this beginning of man to the time in which the Son of Man would come. The reason that that's important to understand is mankind has not really occupied a space and place that long, certainly not when you back it up with what eternity represents, which is timelessness. We're on a very short run to a very quick conclusion, and that is that God has come to save and he will bring the church up, and Israel will be delivered. And the story begins here. And the interesting thing is that within approximation, using that simple analogy, this would have been approximately the 40th generation. Some would say even to the 43rd. The point that I'm making is that 40 is the number of judgment. God would take into consideration the devastation of humanity, its continual bent to rebel against him, ultimately fall and distance himself from them, God, the triune God who created from the very beginning a heart to have fellowship with man. And as this points out, and as Genesis would agree, El Elohim, the plural singular God, on this occasion in Luke, God would judge himself as the son who would take the penalty of sin in his death upon himself. As the world would be plunged into a judgment in Noah's time when we tracked back to then, there was 40 days of judgment in which an ark, a provision for saving man, unique to one family of eight, that he would now put himself in the position to save all of humanity, greater than eight. But anyone who would not necessarily get into the ark before the judgment, but would look to Jesus as ultimately the ark or the ship of salvation for ultimately a yet-to-come judgment upon the world. See, we're no longer judged because of Jesus being judged in our stead. But there is a time in which, as grace is pending now, judgment must come. 
And it is that generation within this margin of time right now we're endeavoring to reach out to. You and I have all been in that spot somewhere along our path. On our way to 100, not many are making it. But we have come to a decision to follow the Lord. And not simply because of an account, but because it was accounted to us as righteousness when we knew it was the only alternative to say, Lord, save me. I've tried this. I've done that. I've believed in you, but I have not yet given my heart to you. There are many people who believe in a God. And there are some who say, I believe in Jesus but they've put a roadblock on their heart. He's not in them. They can just talk about him. So here's where we pick this up. And it says in the 26th verse, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So we couldn't go there when we were there because it's a town right now that doesn't welcome anybody that is an American or outside of, if you would, Middle Eastern descent. It's a town that actually doesn't even really welcome the Jewish people. It's been kind of an amalgam of different kinds of persuasions. But they would say to you, that could be dangerous if you go to Nazareth. The other city surprising to me too was Bethlehem. I don't know if Sam made it to Bethlehem. Did you guys make it to Bethlehem? Because the same thing was on it. That's can be a dangerous place to go to. So Nazareth right now is the city that we're looking at in which a remarkable appearance from God by a messenger angel that we're familiar with in scripture Gabriel's the one that dispatches all the messages. And in this day, he visits Nazareth. And in this occasion, it says to a virgin, the very one that we looked back on in Isaiah, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Technically, they were married. Technically, they were not consummated in their marriage. But they were as good between families and before God, considered as to the altar, ready for the celebration. But until certain other things were in play and wedding feasts, all of the ceremonial things were ready, then they were simply right now in the waiting to be called together. That's an important part because we too right now are in that waiting period. We are the Lord's betrothed. We have been sheltered. We are in his eyes based on the work that he's done redemptively, the spirit that's abiding in us. We are as virgins to him that wait. There's no stain seen upon us. Whatever you and I may be able to account for and say, I've messed up, God would say, I took care of that. That's really important to know, but I keep messing up. He's taken care of it. 
He'll also take care of each one of us if in that particular tension we are not responding as we should, then he's a loving father who knows how to correct us. I found this humorous. It was on a church sign, a placard, it says this, heaven has strict immigration laws, hell has open borders. I didn't pen it, but I said, man, I wish I would have thought of that. But it's true, and I'm all politics aside. I'm saying that God has specific mandates, precepts that are to be followed, and the easiest one that he can give us is acceptation of mercy through his son, Jesus, who would die, purposed from the very beginning. He didn't have to rub his chin going, I wonder what I'm doing here. I wonder if I can do it, Dad. He was committed from heaven to earth through a virgin girl who all the way back probably in her history and her schooling, she had heard about one who would come as God to a woman who was a virgin. And there's a chance that maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand of Israel would have been waiting for the day that possibly in the Lord's grace would be visited to be that girl. It's very possible. They weren't ignorant. Mary quite likely right now is in a quiet time of devotions herself when the visitation becomes her reality. You've had that happen. The quiet times of your devotion when you're talking to the Lord and in doing so, because your heart's there, even if there may be things in which there are distractions, you're not. Your heart is with the Lord. Your desire is to hear from God. And it may not be Gabriel, but we do know this, the Spirit of God in you. And whatever common or extraordinary situation you may be into is capable of bringing the passage that you need to hear for the promise that you need to claim or the one that you forgot to encourage you. Mary's hearing this in compliment and awestruck promise. Notice, having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Do you know how many great men and women thousands of years before her would have heard this? She would have had the classics certainly understood. But you can think of them in which that salutation was the word that someone heard before the command was to go. And so she hears this exclamation, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. And that's an important phrase, blessed are you among women, not above women, which helps us to understand how a particular faith is off target in terms of the scripture being given because Mary is not above woman. She was blessed among women, significant in every way in which her life 
was the contributing factor ultimately to the reason that we are alive. But she was a woman, never became a co-redemptress, never became someone who is an intercessor, intermediary. She was a woman who, in the unfolding of history, met God in her house, which was somehow in that corridor of redemption, and she heard the word of this magnificent visitor coming into her place, very likely a home, perhaps right now in the quiet time of her home, and she hears that salutation. And when she saw him, verse 29, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. The troubling of the heart is not a refutation of what she's hearing. She's trying to assimilate this divine visit with, if you would, her earthly environment. It would be extraordinary to all of a sudden be in a position that she's heard about, read about, and perhaps even dreamt about to all of a sudden say, it's happening to me. And she ponders it. She doesn't reject it. The title of today's teaching, which is Mary on the Contrary, means, and this is interesting, it means that where someone else would go objectively or objectingly, she stays the course of both conscience and heart. She's not going to behave contrary to what this messenger is saying. And she is obviously contrary to the culture of her times. Though there are indeed hundreds if not thousands of women that could have qualified, this is the one that God picked. And as a result, which happens, when God picks you, some people resent that. And she would be a young girl as a woman of God and as the wife-to-be of a man of God that would lay down her reputation to take upon herself being a bondservant of God through the delivery of a child, even though the comprehension of what that means is beyond her. The question will come out. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The second time that this has been affirmed, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Sounds pretty similar to what Isaiah was prophesying 700 years earlier, almost as if it had been extracted from the script. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I do not know a man. She's essentially saying, Though I am betrothed, we do not know each other intimately. The question isn't challenging. If she had challenged it, 
Gabriel would have had an answer for her as he did for Zechariah, who was challenged in what he would say about Elizabeth and he having a baby who ultimately was John the Baptist. He couldn't speak. The difference is how the heart questions. Her heart is not questioning God. She's affirming, and I think it's important, that without him, this could not be. And she's confirming, it hasn't happened to me in an earthly way. And so this is the explanation. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that the Holy One who is, is to be born will be called the Son of God. It concludes there. At least as far as this and what will happen to her and then he moves into a narration in which he is telling her that Elizabeth, her older cousin, is in fact with child. Six months in advance of what now will be the start of her pregnancy, conception. And verse 37, jumping to that, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said classically, and perhaps what we as well should not only agree to, but say amen to, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She, in essence, in what she said, signed the contract. The deed of her life was turned over to God. In every part of it that you and I perhaps can look back on and say, oh, the difficulty, the trauma. Does she even know what she's doing? What we do know is she's being obedient to God without knowing everything except that she loves God. She's not denying that God can use one such as her, even though the favor of God has been spoken to her. Do you realize that it's important to note that the church can find itself stunted because the salutation of what God thinks about you isn't believed in? And so you question how God could use you, or you perhaps don't take seriously that even the smallest thing that he would use you for is a big thing for what he wants to accomplish in this lineage that still is happening. As long as we live and breathe, we're a part of this lineage, this generational lineage, the years that have to clock off before God takes us out. We have to be a part of it. We get dismissed when, by incident, consequence, the sovereignty of God, he says, time to come up. And that's not a demotion, that's promotion. It's sorrowful when we say goodbye to people, but remember on the other end of our goodbye is a hello in heaven. Very important to realize. And so I wanted to basically just take us right here in which you could go back comparatively and see the word of prophecy that Isaiah gave. 
and to look into really just this intimate but very brief disclosure of the notice. Mary, you're the one. You're the daughter. You're the one that from the time you were in a sand pile, when you were perhaps helping mom with the sheaves, cooking things in the kitchen, God's eyes were upon you. You're the one. How could this be? Because God, because he's going to do this work to satisfy the story that you and maybe a thousand other girls believed in when you were just a child. You're not a child anymore, Mary. You're a woman of God. You'll be esteemed among women. You'll never be above women, but you'll be esteemed. And other wonderful things that we can put in place. But to this decision that she would say, that offered no correction from Gabriel, it was very important to realize that she could have presumed, this is going to be interesting because I'm not married, but I have just come into agreement that this is in fact what I'm not only believing in, but I'll take the skepticism and denial. I will take the naughty thoughts that people will have and I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength. And I'll love my husband. And we'll get through this in nine months. And we'll get through the rest of the tenure of raising the Son of God as he has purposed to make this happen. We will do our part in seeing that it is fulfilled. And their whole life and marriage is the fulfillment of a generation in which the Lord God introduces himself in what we would call the millennial period of judgment. 4,000 years, take or add, but that's an approximation. God himself would say, I'm going to judge myself in your place through this divine providential work of bringing my son, the son of God, into humanity. All God, all man, perfect in both dispositions. He wasn't lesser in one or the other. Perfect, powerful, humble, meek. The child of God. Mary, on the contrary, it can also mean perversely inclined to disobey. But those who satisfy ultimately the will of God in obedience, that's simply saying, I'm not going to listen to culture. I am not going to listen to even my doubts about the impossibility of it. I'm trusting God with my life. I'm going to live my life for God. I'm going to do those things in which the borders of my heart will be closed to any other influence except what God has determined is the allowance of me to walk with him and live for him. The manifestation of the Spirit of God within me. Amen.